Good morning. We've got some handouts coming out to you. I want you to go ahead and look at your watch. And that way, when you are late for lunch, you can say it was not all Tim's fault. Um, all right. Well, uh, we are in First Samuel chapter. We're going to end. Uh, we're going to do the very end of chapter seventeen, and then also look at uh, chapter eighteen um, as well. A few weeks back, Pastor Mark got us uh, to this spot in in chapter seventeen by looking at just probably one of the more famous uh, chapters of Scripture, or at least one of the most. I think better said one of the most famous stories of Scripture, David and Goliath, um, and, uh, and was so helpful in, in pointing out to us uh, that, that the, the main theme there is God's at work, that the battle is the Lord's battle, um, and that, that God was doing a major work. And so really what we're going to look at now, um, it, it is an incredibly important area of Scripture because... I think what this text is after is, okay, but how do you respond to the deliverer of God? What is going to be your response to the deliverer of God? And, uh, and, and we, we are given an amazing picture of that. So um, I'm going to read for us just two verses to start with, 1750 and 81, um, and then we'll, we'll make our way, God willing, through, uh, through the rest of it as we go. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, and he struck the Philistine and he killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. And chapter 18 opens up this way. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Let's pray. Father, the mercies that you've shown us are unreal. The fact that we can come together on a regular basis, what a treat. The fact that we can do so in the amazing comfort that we have, it's unbelievable. The fact that we have a printed word in our language, and, and most of us can read it, so few in believers in Christian history have ever had this opportunity. And the fact that we can come hear the Word of God preached, Your Word written down ages ago, preserved for us, and Your Spirit attends Your Word, these are unbelievable mercies. Father, would we make much of them together this morning? Would Your Spirit work through Your Word? Father God, I pray that the deliverer of God, the deliverer of the enemies of God, Jesus Christ, would be exalted, identified, and loved this morning. I pray, Father, that you will make followers of Jesus for those who are not followers, and that, Father, you would uh, enrich the faith in the vision of those who are followers through our time together this morning. Amen. All right, I want you to picture this headline. This is, this is a headline I need you to picture. T 
Tim Martin of North Carolina scores in the Buffalo Bills' first Super Bowl win. Now, hold on, hold on, hold on. I want you to actually imagine that that happened. No, no, no. Seriously. It's a thought experiment. Let's construct how that seemingly impossible scenario might actually be feasible. Perhaps we could imagine the Bills getting back to a Super Bowl. That's possible. Not this year, but it's possible. And then I want you to imagine that maybe, maybe one of my schoolmates, uh, he's become a multi-billionaire. Unfortunately, I don't know him. Uh, and, and he hears that the Bills are in the Super Bowl, and he remembers me as the only person in his Davidson County Middle School um, who was cheering for the Buffalo Bills. And, and he seeks me out. And what he does is he fully funds a, a trip for me to go to the Super Bowl. But he's so rich. He has so much money he doesn't know what to do with. He buys the Super Super Bowl package. And this package is made to give super fans the experience of the Super Bowl. So they actually add you onto the team roster for one day. And, and you get to do everything with the team. All right, so they even give me a uniform. So there I am at the game in the, on the sidelines. In the first half, the Bills go down 35 to nothing. We definitely can imagine that. So I get to travel with the team into the locker room. And at the end of, of halftime, right before the team is getting ready to go out, I, I, I just lose it. I can't take any more, and I can't control myself, and I just go off. I tell them, I tell them about all the abuse I've taken over the years. I tell them how long I have stuck with the Buffalo Bills through thick and thin. I tell them of my grandpa and the torture they put that good man through. And somehow it lights a spark. And in the, in the second half, the Bills go nuts. In fact, with four seconds left, the Bills are now up 84 to 35. Even I can rest easy that they will win. They then call a timeout, and the craziest thing happens. The coach, he walks over, and he looks at me, he says, get your helmet on, you're going in the game. And I said, huh? He says, listen, Martin, that speech you gave, man, it sparked something. Something happened, and we want you to be part of this victory. It is fourth and 64. And the, the other team, there's only three seconds left, and they've got it on their three-yard line. We know they're going to kneel down. So here's what we want you to do. You're just going to go in, and you're just going to stand on the far sideline so you don't get hurt, and, uh, and you get to say you're part of the game. So I said, yeah, no problem. So I go in, and sure enough, they're going to kneel down. But the center, he fubs the fumble, and it, it, it's, it's loose. The running back goes to, kick, to pick it up, but he kicks it. He kicks it towards the sideline. And it's right in front of me. I don't know what else to do. I'm so excited. I fall on it and cue the headline. Tim Martin of North Carolina scores in the Buffalo Bills first Super Bowl win. Mm. Now that might seem far-fetched to you because it is. But I want you to see that the story of David and Goliath is as far-fetched as the story I gave you. Look at verse 50. So David prevailed over the Philistine 
with a sling and a stone. And he struck the Philistines and killed them. The Philistine and killed him. Hold on, just to make sure we get the point. There was no sword in the hand of David. Verse 50 should sound as silly to us as Tim Martin scores in Super Bowl win. The only way that David is in the Valley of Allah was because of a major backer, God, who worked out some crazy details to land David there. His very presence was a tremendous work of God. Furthermore, the fact that the Israelites prevailed against the Philistines is about as surprising as the Bills finally securing a Super Bowl win. The Philistines had owned the Israelites so long that we're told in 1 Samuel 13 that the Philistines had kept them from even having swords. And the fact that David won with a sling and a stone is even more improbable than the Bills winning with me on the roster. Like the Bills would never rely on me in the future in my story, I promise you. So David would never, ever again rely on a sling and stone in his military endeavors. We have more info on David's military pursuits and his tactics than any other biblical uh, character. And yet, do you know how many times the man pulls out a sling and a stone? Once. We're not to read the story of David and Goliath as a lesson on how to conquer your giants. Because outside of God's miraculous intervention, it is more of a lesson of how to get a courageous kid killed. David indeed defeated Goliath, but God alone can take the credit. As Pastor Mark showed us, the battle belongs to the Lord. Just to emphasize that this is all God's doing, verse 49, ah, the scriptures don't miss a beat. Listen to how they describe it when Goliath fell. He fell on his face on the ground. Oh, now wait a second. We got a Philistine big man falling on his face on the ground. I've read that book. Chapter 5, remember Dagon? Poor guy. The, the Philistine god, you remember how he went down? It's exactly how the text puts it. Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground. The same way that God alone took care of Dagon, God alone took care of Goliath. The irony of the story is that it is as improbable as it is certain. All because of God's providence. But if God alone can take the credit, why is this story so often confused to make it sound like David alone should take the credit? I would argue that the ambiguity in the text is intentional. The text intentionally points us to a work of God through the person of David. The text is pointing us to a man, a man who perfectly aligns with the will and the ways of God in order to point us to the ultimate deliverer, the son of David, Jesus. The stone from a brook defeating the enemy of God in the valley of Allah. Oh, it foreshadows the baby from a virgin defeating the enemy of God on the mount called Calvary. Look with me at verses 51 through 53. 
Then David ran, and he stood over the Philistine, and he took his sword, and he drew it out of his sheath, and he killed him. This is with Goliath's own sword here. And he cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout, pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Akron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharim as far as Gath and Akron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. In David, we see the deliverer of God identified. So now we know who he is. From this moment on, David is the Israelite deliverer. But David ultimately foreshadows the work of God in our final deliverer, Jesus. Like David used the weapons of the enemy to defeat him, so Christ would use the weapons of our enemy, Satan, to defeat him. Satan, our enemy, he used the fruit of a tree. The fruit of a tree to bring about our disobedience, which cursed us to death in shame. Oh, how interesting. Jesus, our deliverer, out of obedience to God, becomes a curse for us upon a what? A tree, enduring death and shame to bring about the what? The fruit of our salvation. Our deliverer defeated our enemy with the enemy's own sword. I would point us to Colossians chapter 2, and I gave it to you in your handout, which tells us of God canceling our debt of sin by triumphing triumphing over his enemies through his death. David is now identified. David is the deliverer. And now we watch what happens next. Verse 54. And David took the head of the Philistine and he brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his armor in his tent. Now this verse is interesting. It's interesting because this is the only mention of the word Jerusalem in all of 1 Samuel. By mentioning this verse, we are being pointed to the picture of David's future reign, which is recorded in 2 Samuel, which will be in Jerusalem, which will also become the site of the temple. This verse points us to the beginning of the Davidic kingdom. The defeat of Goliath marks the beginning of the Davidic reign in the same way that the resurrection of Jesus already stamps the beginning of the Messiah's ultimate reign. Verse 55. Now as soon as Saul, so now we're starting to get the reactions. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, inquire whose son this boy is. And as soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. Tad awkward. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. So now Saul wants to know who is the shepherd boy 
Now, you may find it odd that he didn't know David since David had already played music before him in chapter 16, but that Saul couldn't remember his background is understandable since the fact that he'd only really been a servant of David before. But now, after seeing how God used David, he needs to understand more. Furthermore, don't forget that in chapter 17 and verse 25, he had made some promises to whoever actually takes out this Goliath. His family is going to be tax exempt. Uh, he's going to enrich him. He's going to make him rich. And, oh, there's one other thing. He gets one of his daughter's hand in marriage. All of this would require now certain knowledge as to who is the family of origin for this young man. And so here we get further identification of the deliverer of God's people. God will use David to deliver and help his people, but in so doing, again, we see Jesus marked and identified. We are told in, in Genesis 49 that the promised king will come from the line of Judah, which is the very line that Jesse descends from. The text further points us to the fact that David was from Bethlehem, which will be the very birthplace of none other than our deliverer, Jesus. It is clear, David is identified as the deliverer of God's people, pointing us to the ultimate deliverer, Jesus, our Lord. All right, now we're going to watch these responses come in and look with me at chapter 18, verse 1. The traits of a follower. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the son of Jonathan, sorry, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. So, so some quick facts about this Jonathan. First, we know that he's the son of Saul. That's pointed out to us in, in 1 Samuel 14. Second, we, we, uh, we know that he would have been the very next in line uh, in, in the kingdom uh, had it not been for the fact that he died and, and obviously that David was going to take his place. So he's next in line. He's the one that David is stealing uh, the, uh, uh, the order from. Third, we know that he displays amazing faith, and it is a faith that can only be attributed to, to the Spirit, the work of the Spirit of God. Let me explain. These are the words of Jonathan in 1 Samuel 14, 6. We already passed this point, but let me just read this, okay? This is, this is what he says. Is he, by himself, it's just him and his armor bearer, they're, they're going to face off on some Philistines. Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. You see how he sees things in spiritual terms? Those are not the people of God. We are the people of God. So he basically just said, come, let us go over to the people who are these enemies of God. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Oh my goodness, who does this sound like? It sounds just like spirit-filled David as he faces down with Goliath, doesn't it? So imagine this faith-filled servant, Jonathan, as he watched the scene unfold there in the valley of Allah. Forty days he watched as Goliath taunted the people of God. Forty days. This is hard enough for anybody to watch, but it would be torture for a man of the faith of Jonathan. 
Like David, he saw through spiritual lens. Like David, he saw that no enemy of God should be able to stand and threaten the people of God. But for whatever reason, God held Jonathan back. Instead, he had to watch and torturously wait. That is, until the day this young shepherd boy, David, who seemed to be wearing the same strange spiritual glasses that Jonathan wore. He steps up and he calls things for the way they actually are. Oh, how Jonathan's heart had to pound as he heard David look Goliath in the eyes and say to him in 1 Samuel 17, 45 through 46, you come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin? I come in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all of the earth may know there is a God in Israel. Can you imagine the joy the love, the respect engendered upon Jonathan by David as he watched the scene unfold. That's what the text means when it says immediately Jonathan's soul was knit to the soul of David. They saw through the same spiritual lens. Both had eyes opened by the Spirit to see and believe in the ways of God. And what happens when the Spirit of God opens somebody's eyes to see correctly? What happens when the Holy Spirit awakens eyes blinded by sin? They instantly, with neither coercion nor hesitation, turn and follow the deliverer of God. No matter the cost. No matter the cost. And that is the scene recorded in the next few verses. When Jonathan meets the one, he is sure is the deliverer sent by God. Verse 2, And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and he gave it to David in his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. I have to tell you, I think this is one of the most helpful pictures of faith that could ever be plotted. Jonathan handing David his robes his armor, his sword, his bow, his belt. Do you realize in so doing, Jonathan hands the deliverer of God, he hands him his future. He hands him his glory. He hands him his safety. He hands over his dignity. He calls to mind the story of Matthew's conversion in Matthew 9, 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and praise God, he rose and followed him. 
Or surely we can think of Jesus' own teaching about what it means to follow in Luke 9, 23. And he said to all, if anyone is going to come after me, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross daily and what? Follow me. Let it be known what it is to follow Jesus, the deliverer of God. Followers of Jesus see Jesus and they follow in life-altering ways. The Spirit of God shows them spiritual realities. Realities like the need for deliverance. And the same Spirit shows them a deliverer on a cross, risen from the grave, and they hand it all over. And they follow. They're followers. And they're fans. And they're not the same. Verse 5. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And they were coming home. When David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another and celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. The same act that led Jonathan to almost indescribable sacrifice leads others to adoring adulation. Fans of the Deliverer appreciate his immediate benefits. As David struck down more Philistines, he gains more fans. To the people, their chief problem, Nemes, it's the Philistines. David scratches that itch, so they're fans. So long as there are Philistines, they were happy there was a David. David added to their portfolio with little or no cost to their way of life. Go, David, go. But fans look quite different when compared to a real follower like Jonathan Dalton. See, a follower is connected how? We've already seen it. Spirit-wrought faith. A fan is connected by immediate benefits. Fans don't actually, you don't have to have much faith. You don't even need much faith. Believe me, I'm a Bills fan. I like the Bills. I want them to do well. I cheer for them against their opponents. But do I trust them? Oh gosh, no. Not a bit. Don't trust them in as far as I can throw them. No way, wide right. That's all I got to say, right? No, I don't trust them. Of course not. Jesus makes this point all throughout his ministry. Like his, likely his biggest fan moment was the feeding of the 5,000. When it's done, do you remember what he says to them as they seemingly follow him the next day? John 6, 26, he answers them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do we hear what he's saying? You're not seeking me because you have spiritual vision. It's because you think I can satisfy your immediate need. This doesn't require faith. It requires mere desire. While it might be hard to distinguish between the fan of Jesus and the follower of Jesus, I'm telling you, they are radically different realities. One seeks Jesus as a supplier. 
The other seeks Jesus as a Savior. One sees through spirit-given eyes of faith. The other sees through flesh-born eyes of need. It doesn't take faith to see Jesus as a source of wisdom and goodness. The unrepentant, rich, young ruler demonstrates this perfectly. It doesn't take faith at all to see Jesus as a source of health and wealth. There are nine unrepentant lepers that will be a witness to that. It does take spirit-given faith to see ourselves as spiritually dead in need of deliverance and bowing the knee, the knee to the Lord of life. Well, we've seen followers and we've seen fans. Now we shall see foes. Verse 8. Saul was very angry. This saying displeased him. That is, David's guilt is ten thousands. He said, They ascribe to David ten thousands, and they ascribe to me thousands. And what more can he have <laughs> but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house. While David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day, Saul had his spear in his hand and Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I'll pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but it departed from Saul. Saul, Saul removed from his removed him from his presence. And he made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all of his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw this, that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all of Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out in and came, he went out and came in before them. So if you have to guess, at the end of David's big victory, Who's going to be the most likely person to try to kill David after Goliath? Uh, after Goliath? Who are you going to guess? Surely you're guessing Philistines, right? Nope. They don't even seem to be a threat to him. Not even mentioned in a way. It's not like he has a Philistine guard surrounding him. Nothing. Instead, the danger comes from who? Saul, the ruler of Israel. Again, the similarities between this passage and the ministry of Jesus, they're so interesting. If you had to guess who would be a threat to Jesus... Surely you're going to say the Romans. Yet, the only time the Romans are a threat to Jesus is after they were coaxed, coached into killing him by the rulers of Israel. On the other hand, the rulers of Israel were constantly warring against Jesus. I went through, I counted eight different occasions in the Gospels. I gave you those in your handout. Eight different occasions in the Gospels where the rulers of Israel either tried to kill him directly or plotted to try to kill Jesus. Saul is a foe to the deliverer of God because the deliverer of God threatens what Saul wants and needs, his throne, his glory, and his status. He is the opposite of Jonathan. And the text makes it, the comparison so explicit. Saul is blinded by the eyes of the flesh to see David as the taker and not the giver. 
one of the things I reflected on is a thought about that. What's so scary to me is you don't have to go but a couple chapters back. The very thing that Saul is so scared of David taking is what? The kingdom. Hold on. Do you remember who was hiding in the baggage because he was so scared he was going to be made what? King? It was Saul. Why is that scary? It shows me the fickleness of the human heart. This man can go from one moment not ever wanting it to another moment being willing to deny his soul if it's taken. Our hearts are so scary. Saul twice tries to kill him by his own hand. When those attempts fail, he, he next demotes David to let him see some more action by making him a ruler of thousands. And David prevails. The hand of the Lord is upon the deliverer of the Lord. Saul sees it. And it's the very thing in verse 15 that scares him. Well, when that won't work, he goes down a more sinister path. He uses the, one, the ones whom he should protect and to provide to protect and provide for as his bait. Let's read this together. Verse 17. Then Saul said to David, Here, here's my elder daughter, Mirab. I'll give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, Who... Who am I? And who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Mirab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Maholothite, for a wife. Recall that David's already earned the hand of Saul's daughter. We saw that because of just by winning about the victory over Goliath. But Saul now tries to, to add on to a bride price. And so he's hoping he could do so by, by doing it. He'll, he'll take the life of David. And yet David just responds with what? Humility and grace. So when the, the marriage to his oldest doesn't work out, he now turns to his next daughter using her as bait for his enemy. Again, the comparisons are amazing. Here he is taking the ones he's supposed to care for and protect, and he's using them as bait, sure sounds a lot like the way the Pharisees treated the lame and the broken to just put them up before Jesus to see if they could just stump them. I wonder if he'll do the awful thing of healing them on a Sabbath. Verse 20, Now Saul's daughter, Michael, or Michal, loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Hmm. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, You shall now be my son-in-law. This is round three of the promises. And Saul commanded his servant, Speak to David in private and say, <clears throat> Behold, the king has delight in you, and all of his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servant spoke these words in the ear of David. And David said, oh, it's beautiful. Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law? Since I'm a poor man, I've, I have no reputation. And servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, 
The king desires no bride price uh, except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. Verse 26, And when his servants told David these, these words, it pleased David well to be this king's son-in-law. Before this, the time had expired, David arose and he went along with his men and he killed uh, 200 of the Philistines. David brought their foreskins which were given in the full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michal for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and Michal, Saul's, and Saul's daughter loved them. Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Here again, Saul tries to have David killed and again, David prevails. Even Saul was able to draw the rightful conclusion. Even the blindness of Saul can see the Lord is with David. And that Saul's own daughter loves him. Surely the words of 1 Samuel 15, 28 are ringing in the ears of Saul at this point. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to you a neighbor of yours who is better than you the lord has torn the kingdom from you this day he's given it to your neighbor who is better than you the enemies of jesus sought to destroy destroy him all the while what happened amazing kingdom flourishing like the world's never seen healings amazing teaching signs and wonders and when, when they did succeed, succeed to kill him, it only allowed him to move on to be crowned the very king of, the, of kings and lord of lords. Friends, the deliverer of God has come. And he has defeated our enemy on the cross of Calvary. And there's a question. Will we be a follower, a fan, or a foe? And I have to tell you, as I considered this week, just the traits of a true follower. I thought of Jonathan a lot. I found it overwhelming. Inspirational, yes, but overwhelming. I want to see as clearly as Jonathan. But so often I don't resemble that type of vision. I feel much more like a fan at times when the demands of, of Jesus stand in the ways of my flesh. I feel more like a foe. I love how Jonathan responded. I love it. I just don't often see that clear certainty in my faith. If you identify with these struggles, let me end with a place where I found some hope. If you don't, good for you. Praise God. Let me tell you where I found a little hope this week in there. A little bit of Bible trivia time here. King Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. Well, aside from Jesus, we only know of one tribal affiliation of one other person in all of the New Testament. It's kind of crazy. So we know that Jesus is from Judah. We only know of one other person, what tribe they're from in all of the New Testament. I bet you can't guess his name. Saul. Saul of Tarsus. I bet you can't guess what tribe Saul of Tarsus is from. 
Benjamin. Benjamin. So, I bet you can't guess how many Saul's there are in all of the Bible. Two. There's two. So we have the chief foe of the deliverer of God in the Old Testament, who just so happens to be named what? Saul. And I don't think that it's mere coincidence that the chief foe of the deliverer of God, that is Jesus in the New Testament, happened to be named Saul. Listen to how Saul of Tarsus described himself, and tell me if this doesn't sound just like a relative of King Saul. Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. If anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, oh, I have more. I'm circumcised on the eighth day of people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. If that is not textbook foe, I don't know what is. You could almost have a, have a verse heading above that that says, a king we can see. A king like all the other nations. But what is the very next verse in Philippians chapter 3? Unreal. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ Jesus. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus. The righteousness from God that depends on Faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrections, that I may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The man who was textbook foe happens to also, praise God, be the same man who lived and died as textbook follower. Saul became Jonathan. That's called New Covenant Transformation. Praise God. It's spirit-wrought vision. What changed Saul of Tarsus? What changed? Acts chapter 9, verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came, he sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit and immediately. Like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight and he rose and he was baptized and taken food, he was strengthened. The Spirit of God made Saul of Tarsus look a whole lot more like Jonathan of Tarsus. Brothers and sisters, let's find hope. The same Spirit of God, He's working to transform, to transform foes to followers. 
fans to followers. Let's pray. Let's pray that he transforms us from fans and foes to followers and children. And may he be kind to open our eyes and strengthen our faith and give us eyes to see by the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for how it points us from the very opening all the way to the close to one Savior, one Deliverer. His name is Jesus. Father, strengthen our faith. Give us vision. But thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you that there was not a 12-step program that took Saul of Tarsus to become the Apostle Paul. It was the very same Spirit who lives in the lives of believers today that made this chief foe become the chief follower. Father, unite us in faith by your Spirit to our Deliverer, Jesus Christ. Amen.